I had a, a counseling situation not too long ago, and it was a very difficult situation. Two men came in, both of them with some pretty heavy problems that they were dealing with. Obviously, I, I wouldn't go into details on this. That wouldn't be appropriate. But I spent an hour talking with them and listening to them. In fact, I spent much more time listening to them than talking to them. And uh, after I'd done all that I felt that I could do in the, in the time that we had at, at our disposal, I said to them, in the end, I just want to read something to you. I got out a Bible that intentionally did not look like a Bible, just looked like a big book, because I didn't want to frighten them. I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the, the passage that describes love to them. And it was really quite amazing to see what happened. I don't know if either of them was in any way familiar with that passage of Scripture, but as I read it to them, their faces relaxed, their eyes were absolutely fixed on me, and they began to drink in every word. And just to be reminded of what love is all about, touched a chord in those men's lives. And I am convinced... And I went on to explain to them. I said, you know, guys, all the stuff we've talked about, this is where the action is. This is what our world is craving for. This is what makes it work. And our problem is that we are so confused on the subject of love, which, of course, is at the very root of any kind of relationship and particularly any kind of friendship. So let me talk to you for a few minutes about love. When I say a few minutes, that will be a preacher's few minutes, <laughs> which other people would interpret as an interminable amount of time. Now, it's always a good idea to define your terms, and let's start out there, and, I, and I'll tell you why it's necessary for us to define our terms. Because the word love which is an English word, obviously, is that the English language was invented by the English, and therein lies a very, very severe problem. The reason for this problem, of course, is that, as we all know, the British are required to maintain a stiff upper lip at all times, which means to give the impression that they have no emotions whatsoever and incidentally, no sense of humor either. At least that's what some people say. In fact, the standard American joke is, how do you keep an Englishman happy in his old age? You tell him a joke in his youth. <laughs> so, so the general perception, the general perception is that the British have no sense of humor and they have no emotions. Now, if it is true that the British have no emotions, or perhaps more accurately, that they're not allowed to betray them, it is obvious that they do not need a lot of emotive words. Because if you're not going to be expressing emotion, you're not going to be talking about them, why in the world would you invent a whole lot of words? So, the English word love will do just, just fine for all kinds of things. So, it would not be unusual to find an Englishman. Remember, they invented the language that you speak, or, well, you approximate uh, to it. <laughs> They invented that particular language, not requiring a lot of emotive words. So an Englishman might be heard to say this, I love my wife. And then a little later on he'll say, oh, I love my dog. 
But then when he gets talking about football, he might betray something very similar to emotion. And he would say, but I love Manchester United. Manchester United is a wonderful football team. People ask me, are you ever homesick for England? And I say, yes, every time Manchester United play. But that's another subject for another time. And the unlikely event that I'm invited back here again. (laughs) Now, you'll notice that uh, this Englishman will use exactly the same word to describe his attitude towards his wife and his dog and his favorite sport, which you may think is rather odd. But in actual fact, if you think that an Englishman thinks as highly of his wife as his dog, you must bear in mind that if the dog is outside and it starts raining, he will send his wife out to bring (laughs) the, the dog in. Now, the problem, of course, is this, that because this English word love is such an all-encompassing word, it could describe how you feel about your wife and how you feel about your dog and how you feel about your favorite sport. It's not surprising that we are, we're confused as far as love in relationships is concerned. One of the things that we do in our premarital classes is that we ask the lovelorn young people, were you loved as a child? Were you loved as a child? And the answer will be yes, no, or I don't know. Well, now, the next question we will ask in response to that answer is, how do you know? How do you know that you were loved as a child? Sometimes the young lady will say something like this, well, we were very affectionate and we were very demonstrative, and there's a lot of hugging went on, and we bought each other flowers, and we never forgot birthdays, and we always hugged and kissed each other good night every night, and we're always telling each other that we loved each other. Turn to the young man and say, well, were you loved uh, when you were a kid? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, what makes you think that? Well, uh, my dad never said anything. (laughs) Never said much. Don't ever remember him hugging me. In fact, I think he'd have been embarrassed if I did that. Uh, Came to to my ball games. Never said much. But screwed up, he did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think he loved me. I think you love me. Now, without getting into this in any great detail, do you see why it's important to talk about this to a couple getting married? You see, the language of love for her is hugs and kisses and flowers and chocolates. And the language of love for him is silence and showing up at a ball game and saying nothing. Now, what if her expectations are hugs and kisses and flowers and chocolates and all he gets is <laughs> slaps her on the butt occasion, he says... Pretty good. <laughs> You're done good. There are problems. What are we talking about when we're talking about love? What are we talking about when we're talking about this thing that is so important? How important is it? The two fundamental commandments are you should love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus himself says, that does it. That's it. So we better try really hard to figure out what this love is. And I would submit to you that our common usage of the word probably doesn't necessarily do it. Now, as far as the New Testament is concerned, it's quite different in that it was written originally in Greek. 
And one of the great things about the Greeks is they are highly emotional. And because they are highly emotional, they, unlike the British, need all kinds of emotive words. Let me show you what they are. This isn't going to be technical, don't worry. But just by way of showing you what we're talking about when we begin to try to understand love as it is taught in the Scriptures. The first Greek word for love that I've mentioned to you is eros, E-R-O-S, which obviously is the root word for erotic. It is the word that describes physical love with particular reference to sexual activity. Now, the thing, of course, we must say right away is that whilst the scripture has much to say on the subject of sex, the word, the Greek word eros does not occur in the scriptures. But there is much on, on the subject of sex there. I used to have a great time with the, with the kids in England years and years ago when I used to go into the coffee bars and talk. And there was nothing arranged, of course. We'd just stand on a chair. They, they knew us, and they knew we were going to talk to them for a few minutes. And so I'd shout out, what do you want me to talk about tonight? Which sounds terribly brave, but there were very, very few things they were interested in. So it wasn't brave at all. And it was only a matter of time until somebody from the dark recesses of the room would, would shout, Sex! <laughs> sex! Talk about sex! You see? And they would all laugh and, because they wanted to embarrass me because they knew I was a Christian and presumably didn't believe in it. So I, I said, um, I, I, I would say to them, I'll be very, very happy to talk to you on the subject of sex. In fact, this may surprise you, it is one of my favorite subjects. And let me tell you why. If it were not for sex, I would not be here. Moreover, if it were not for sex, you would not be here. In fact, when you come to think about it, the only reason that we can meet here tonight is because of sex. And then I would explain to them that that's wonderful. It is most appropriate we give three, three cheers to fe- for sex. Now, please remember the first sexual thought that was ever thought, God thought it. He actually invented it. Therefore, the smart thing to do is to try to figure out what the inventor had in mind when he invented sex. So, you see, when we think in terms of eros, love, there's nothing dirty about it. In the original concept of it, sex is a divine gift that we embrace and enjoy in the context that he ordained it should be enjoyed. The problem comes when we insist on forgetting what the inventor said and we refuse to read the instruction book, the owner's manual. Now, when the Bible says that we should love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, fortunately, it does not use the word eros. And I'll tell you why. Because the problem with eros love, which is legitimate in its proper context, but the problem with eros love is this that it is basically egotistical. It is fundamentally interested in deriving pleasure for itself. Eros love is fundamentally egotistical, and it is primarily interested in deriving pleasure for itself. Not wrong in its appropriate setting, but if it's out of its setting, it becomes a desperately destructive thing. I don't know how much counseling we have to do 
over broken lives simply because of the abuse of sex. The second word for love is philia, P-H-I-L-I-A, from which we get philanthropy, Philadelphia. In actual fact, Philadelphia is a word that is found in the New Testament and it means literally brotherly love. Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia or philia is different from eros. If eros is egotistical, philia is mutualistic. Now, this is how it it works. Boy meets girl. During the course of their time together, boy says to girl, I like you. And she, being into philia, which is mutualistic, says, I like you. To which he, being encouraged, responds, I like you more than I said. To which she responds, I like you more than I said. To which he replies, I love you. And she says, what? And he says, nothing. (laughs) And she says, go on. (laughs) Now, you'll notice what's happening here. This thing is escalating. Are you with me? It's escalating. I mean, this is getting serious now. And it is mutualistic. One is feeding on the other. Mutualistic. Which is wonderful, as long as it goes on escalating. But eventually, these two are going to get married and live happily ever after for six weeks. (laughs) And after six weeks, we find them at the breakfast table. Normal breakfast table now. They've been married six weeks. She is sitting on one side of the table, and he is sitting on the other side of the table, and she is looking at the back of the USA Today. Fortunately, it has color on it now, so it's a little better than it was for her mother. But the thing is that he is hidden behind the newspaper, and she tries to get him to talk to her. But he is dealing with profoundly significant issues about what to do with Israel and the Palestinians. And how should we handle the budget surplus that we haven't seen yet? (laughs) Now, eventually, she keeps at him till he puts down his paper and he said, all right, if you want to talk, I'll talk to you. This toast. Let's talk about this toast. (laughs) For six weeks, I've had nothing but burnt toast for breakfast. I don't know how long your mother had you to train you, but all she seemed to manage to do was burn toast. You leave my mother out of this. Your mother belongs in this situation. It's her fault that you turned out the way you did. Now you talk to me like that one more time and I'll go back to mother. I think you should. You deserve each other. Now what is happening? Well, it's still mutualistic, folks. Still mutualistic, one is feeding off the other, there's only one problem. What's happening? It's de-escalating. It's de-escalating. Here in a nutshell is the fundamental problem in our culture today. People get married, I've married, I have no idea how many couples. Not one of them ever told me before the wedding, you know, we don't love each other. We don't know why we're doing this. But it sure isn't because we love each other. Not one of them has ever said that. Tragically, there are far too many of those whom I've had the privilege 
of joining together in matrimony and their marriages are long gone. Not because they didn't love each other. Not because they didn't love each other. But because either their love was exclusively eros or because their love was simply philia. If the love is simply eros, the day will come when the physical attraction might fade or the desire for physical excitement might overtake any sense of faithfulness or commitment. And you and I know what happens then. Or it can be that because they were feeding on each other and one put a foot wrong and therefore the other one fed off them and the whole thing came crashing down, that there was nothing to hold them together. So when we're talking about love, the kind of love that the scripture talks about, we're not talking about eros. And we're not talking about philia. Although philia occurs on many occasions in the scripture. The third word is agape or agape, depending on which syllable you put the emphasis. Agape or agape. Now, this is entirely different. If eros, if eros is egotistic love, and philia is mutualistic love. Agape is altruistic love. And here's a definition for you. Here's a definition for you. Agape love is not a feeling, it's a decision. Agape love is not a feeling, it's a decision. It is a decision to be primarily concerned with the well-being of the beloved, regardless of their condition, irrespective of their reaction. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? So I'll give it to you again. Agape love is not a feeling, it's a decision. A decision to be primarily concerned with the well-being of the beloved, regardless of their condition, irrespective of their reaction. Now you're in the big leagues. Now we're talking about something totally different from Eros and Philia. Oh, by the way, can you see how if agape love gets hold of Eros... Eros would never become abusive. And can you see how if agape begins to prevail over philia, that even when somebody puts a foot wrong, the whole thing won't come crashing down? You know what the key is, don't you? It's agape. It's agape love. And that's what friendship, that's what relationships are made of. Agape love. Now, let me give you an example here. There's a tendency for us to think that love is liking somebody a lot. Love is liking somebody a lot. Now, 
let me quote to you a verse of scripture. Very famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how it goes. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can see why it's a famous verse. It is such a powerful, powerful statement. God loved the world such a lot, so much, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if love means liking a lot, just for the sake of argument, let's insert like a lot instead of love in John 3.16. God liked the world such a lot that he... Now where'd you go? God liked the world such a lot that he said, Ooh, I do like it. Ooh. I tell you what we'll do. Let's make another just like it. Let's clone it. Well, he didn't. In actual fact, what the scripture says is this. That God disliked the world intensely. In fact, it even goes so far as to say that God in some ways was sorry he'd made it. When he saw what happened to the sheer mess we made of his world. He disliked it intensely. Oh, but listen. God disliked the world intensely and chose to love it to distraction. You see, it is possible to look at something and to say, I don't like what it is. I don't like what it stands for. I don't like its behavior. And I don't like its reaction. But none of that is relevant because I have made a commitment to be primarily concerned with its well-being. When Jesus came into the world, he could have said, well, I will come down to this world because I like it a lot. And provided it continues to do what I think it should, then I will go on liking it a lot. And if I stick around long enough, maybe I'll get to love it. Is that what he said? No. In fact, if that was the attitude he'd have come down on, listen to what the scripture also says. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Not only did they not receive him, they put him on a cross. They put him on a cross. So what was his attitude? Okay, if that's how it is, I'm going back. No. Regardless of their condition... He disliked it intensely. Irrespective of their reaction, they crucified him. He loved the world to distraction. Why? Because it's agape. What's agape? Agape is not the kind of love that says, I am going to derive pleasure from you by possessing you. Agape does not say, I will love you just so long as you love me. Agape is a decision that says, I will be primarily concerned with your well-being, regardless of your condition, and irrespective of your reaction. And sisters and brothers, listen very carefully. It's that that the world craves. And it's that that the world lacks. So is there any hope Yes, there is. Let me give you another scripture. The fruit 
of the Spirit is love. Now, it's a whole lot more things as well. Nine, eight other things. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Let me tell you another verse of Scripture. It says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. What this means is that God, fully recognizing his love for us, that he longs to see reciprocated to him and to people around us, is fully aware of our own abject inability at this point. Fully aware of our abject inability at this point. But he is able to forgive us because Christ died on the cross for us, and he's able to transform us by sending the spirit of the risen Christ into our lives to empower us for newness of life. God never calls without equipping. Otherwise, he would simply be making fools out of us. When he tells us to love him with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and our neighbor as ourself, he is saying, and I will give you my spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit's work in your life will you begin to see and sense a growing capacity for love which will transform friendships and transform relationships and even transform relationships to those who have done us wrong. Now we're in the big leagues. Now we're in the big leagues. And this is what our world lacks And this at root is what our world craves. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is this. Jesus said a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Not an optional extra for those who are romantically and sentimentally inclined. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now here's the big tension. Somebody would say, well, is love, this agape love that you're talking about, is this agape love the result of obedience to a command? Or is it the result of dependence upon the Spirit? Good question, isn't it? Is this love the result of obedience to a command? A new command I give you that you love one another. Or is it the result of dependence upon the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is. And the answer to the question is yes. Yes. It's not either or. It's both and. How does that work? Let me put it to you this way. I think. I think we're all wired up differently. Have you noticed? (laughs) Of course you have. You've looked at your spouse. (laughs) The old principle, opposites attract, right? For a couple of weeks. And then what? They drive you nuts. That is why, incidentally, that is why when we're preparing for weddings, I always get the bride to write down on a piece of paper three words. I want you to imagine you're writing them down. A-I-S-L-E. What's that? Isle. A-L-T-A-R. H-Y-M-N. Those are the three things 
you're having a wedding, aren't they? I'll alter him. I want to give you something memorable. Opposites attract. We're wired up differently. We have a fatal attraction to those who we know are different from us. And then, of course, as time goes on, it can become a bit of an irritant. Now, here's the point. The way we are wired up very often will mean that some of us are sort of designed for obedience. We are the engineers of this world. We are the financial planners of this world. We are the people who have goals, intermediate goals, measurable goals. Check, check, check. Tick, tick, tick. You can, you can hear them as they go past with an intent look on their face. Then there are the more relaxed people. I won't tell you which Jill and I are. You may possibly have guessed. Jill says, and you've heard this before, that she is going to put on my tombstone, here lies Stuart Briscoe, he never anticipated any major difficulty. To which I reply, and what makes you think I'm going to die before you? I'm not anticipating any major difficulty. So anyway, now here, here's how it goes. The way we are wired up will make one particular dimension of truth more appealing to us than the other. If we are very organized, if we're very detail conscious, then there's a very high probability that we will take very, very seriously the love, the command to love. And so we may even go this far that we have a daytimer. You see? And on the top of our daytimer, we have actually written in, in perpetuity. That's another word I've just learned. In perpetuity, we have written, love somebody today. Target today for love, you see. In the end of the day, check. But boy, does it get tiring. Does it wear you out because you have met some real ugly, mean dudes today? Meanwhile, of course, our relaxed people are saying, if the Spirit of God wants to love somebody through me today, he's perfectly free to go right ahead. No problem. We'll just see how she goes. Now, I want to suggest something to you that both of those approaches, and of course we're caricaturing them to make a point, but both of those approaches are neglecting the fine balance of spirituality which always requires obedience and dependence. If you, in your own personality proclivities, move in the direction of one, which you will, concentrate on the other. If in your own personality proclivity you move towards one, concentrate on the other. So if you are one of those people, today I've got to do an outrageous act of kindness, where do I look for them? <laughs> well, that's wonderful. You're going to be obedient. The only problem is, oh God, this is driving me nuts. Will you please, will you please, by your gracious Holy Spirit, get a grip on my life and give me a heart for this rather than this being a burden. 
rather than being a burden. And the other people who are laid back, they're so relaxed that they're trusting God to do what he's told them to do. Those people just try being obedient. It's good for your system. Now, where does this all come down to? It comes down to this. If we're going to think in terms of healthy relationship on a biblical base, if we're going to think in terms of a genuine love for God and a genuine love for people, and a love that is constantly growing and expanding and deepening and having a ripple effect more and more, it's agape we're talking about. And if we're talking about agape, we're talking about taking seriously the command of Christ in obedience and taking seriously the resources of Christ in the Spirit in dependence. I'll tell you one story, and some of you say, oh, no, not this story again, but yes, this story again, <laughs> because no one else tells it, so if I want to hear it, I have to tell it. But it will illustrate something as well. My car wouldn't start. So I look under the hood. There's nothing I understand under that hood. <laughs> Just oil and dust and last year's leaves and all kinds of stuff under there. But it wouldn't start. I understood that. So I go inside. It's a bitterly cold day. May, I think it was. <laughs> Well, if it was England, it would be the second week of August. But anyway, I go inside, pick up the phone, call my friend Donnie Couchman. Donnie, my car won't start. What's the matter with it? Well, if I knew that, I wouldn't be calling you. <laughs> well, if your car won't start, it's either the spark or the fuel. Well, gee, thanks very much. Well, just try it. Well, could you come over and help me? Yeah, okay, I'll come. So... I wait inside until I hear him coming. It was easy to hear him coming because in those days he used to drive a dune buggy in the middle of a Wisconsin winter. So he comes roaring around the corner. I rushed outside and, and looked under the hood. <laughs> so he comes up to me and he said, now remember, if your car won't start, it's either the spark or the fuel. I said, sure, I know that. He said, here, hold this. So he gave me a screwdriver, a great big screwdriver. He said, hold this. So I held it like this. He said, not there. Down here. So he pushed my arm down inside the engine. Now he said, press hard. So I, I pressed hard, and he got inside the car, and something ecstatic happened. <laughs> well, that's the only way I can describe it. I went into an ecstasy. <laughs> I began to leap and to jump. And I thought, I'm having a spiritual experience here. It started very suddenly, and it, it passed very quickly. And he got out of the car, and he said, it's your fuel. I said, how'd you know? And he said, if your car won't start, it's either the spark or the fuel. I said, I know that. He said, well, it's not your spark. I said, how do you know that? He said, didn't you feel it? <laughs> and my understanding is this, that an internal combustion engine operates on the basis of spark and fuel. Not either or, 
a mix of both. Now, I know some mechanics are going to come up and say, what about oxygen? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't spoil my illustration. Spark and fuel. Not either or, both and. Sisters and brothers, we've had some fun tonight, but underlying it all, there is a desperately serious issue. Do you know what it is? This world of ours is starving for love. This world of ours is starving for love. The kind of love that will begin to say, on the basis of what God has done for me, when I was not particularly desirable, when my attitude was reprehensible, he nevertheless committed himself to my well-being, touched my life and drew me to himself on the basis of what he has done for me. I ask him now to get hold of this cold, hard heart of mine and forgive it and mold it and fill it with a love that is attributable only to the work of the Spirit and in dependence upon him and in obedience to his word I'll commit myself to go out and learn how to love and that way you'll not only build a circle of friends you might even see your enemies become your friends <laughs>